Hello, everyone. Welcome to another episode of Revolutionary Jargon. We have a very special guest today. He is a close friend of mine. We are both YDSA comrades, my great best friend, Ian. How are you today, man? I'm doing well. I'm doing well. It's a nice day here and can't complain. How about you? I'm doing great, man. So do you want to give like a brief intro of who you are, what your type of leftist politics is and what you're doing right now? I'm nobody. <laughs> uh, <laughs> my name's Ian. Um, I, I'm one of the founders of our YDSA chapter at Lawrence Tech. And uh, my leftist politics are pretty broad. Um, you know, people often talk about politics in two ways, what they, what they believe versus what they do. I mean, I think for most people, there's a big gap there. But, uh, you know, I try to stay pretty involved in uh, sort of local leftist causes wherever I'm at. When I'm in Detroit, I'm pretty active with Detroit DSA. When I'm at home in New York, I'm not so active with anything, but that's life. Um, yeah. Yeah. Yeah, that's, that's a pretty good intro, man. You know, I feel like a lot of people start off on the left that way, trying to understand different types of leftism before they make a decision and really looking at their own community. So that's a pretty great work. Um, let's get into our first topic, really, I wanted to talk about really was the Biden administration. You know, uh, prominent uh, progressives like Bernie Sanders and AOC has been telling uh, other progressives that they can push Biden left on certain things. Now, I'm not trying to make the argument and ask you if that's successful or not. I guess what I'm asking you is, um, what parts, what's your opinion on the uh, Biden administration overall so far? And in general, um, are there any benefits to it? And are there any negatives to it? Um, I don't know. I, I mean, I had astronomically low expectations of what this administration would bring. I didn't think he was going to do anything that I wanted. And then right out of the gate, he, he did a couple of things that I thought were decent when he was, you know, endorsing the, the union drive in Bessemer. I thought that was good. You know, he says he's in favor of the PRO Act. I think that's good. But, you know, the first couple of weeks, he passed a little bit of somewhat progressive legislation. And since then, it seems like it's been radio silence. So... I'm back to not being uh, surprised. Yeah, I guess I can feel you on that. I mean, the Biden administration so far has been, as Kyle Kalinske says, beyond underwhelming. <laughs> and I guess the reason why you say that is because I think a report that just came out that said, I think Biden has broken literally all of his campaign promises uh, back in November. Like, there's no Biden care, which really is just a Medicaid expansion, which he's refusing to do. Um, he promised the George Floyd family, which we'll talk about uh, later, the effects and um, the positive effects and negative effects of really what happened last summer. Um, Joe Biden promised the George Floyd family that they would pass the George Floyd Act. And it's been a year and he hasn't done that as well. Um, look at the $15 minimum wage. Joe Biden was saying during the campaign, I'll pass it. And apparently the, you know, what's their, what's their fucking job? Um, the, par the Senate parliamentarian now basically is the king and basically decides, or queen in this instance, decides what we can do if that isn't going through. And look at the infrastructure plan. I mean, Biden is literally capitulating to Republicans when he has the votes to do so. So, I mean, my thoughts, as, as you can tell, I'm very optimistic about Joe Biden, you know, based on what I'm saying so far. So, I mean, yeah. what, are you, what are your thoughts on like, um, 
really the power that Biden has to do and what he could do, but is really refusing to do so. You know, is this something that you believe that, yeah, what's your thoughts on that? I don't know. It's, it's almost contradictory, I think, but the, the role of president of the United States is very strange, right? You have a lot of, the way I see it, you often have a lot of really broad ranging power to do bad things. And then when you try to do something good, all of a sudden there's all these roadblocks and checks on your power. That's, that's how I've always, um, or that's how I've come to see it. I think, um, you know, like I think a president Bernie Sanders would have, um, probably gotten blocked on a lot of things, right? All of a sudden, I wouldn't be surprised if you found that like, oh, the Senate's finally going to start checking the power of the president. Oh, the Supreme Court's turning over this and that and the other thing, right? Um, you know, you can even look at something like Obamacare, which was obviously you know, a heritage plan, like or a heritage uh, foundation plan and like a fairly right-wing solution to the very obvious healthcare issues we have in America. And, um, you know, maybe the, the one really good thing in there was the Medicaid expansion, right? making it uh, far easier for people to get on Medicaid. Well, the Supreme Court says, oh, states can decide that they just don't want free money to do this. And then all of a sudden, oh, the whole South says no. You know, I mean, it seems like, and that was an act that passed through through the, through Congress and the president, whatever. It's just like, you know, we, we see the office of the presidency as having all this power, and it does, but it seems like it's only, they only ever have power to do negative things. <laughs> I mean, yeah, that's actually kind of a fair critique, because the institutional power is at bay. Like, it seems like you can do it, you can, you know, bomb a country at the snap of a finger, literally. But when it comes to, hey, let's raise to $15 minimum wage, and you only need us in many instances you only need a simple majority vote because of uh robert bird's um bit uh, robert bird the, the bird rule in the senate which is basically the budget reconciliation that was created in the 70s you can literally use that and they're like eh you know this parliamentarian we don't I, biden's all about the rules so i mean i think those instances too and people always say that oh well you know he's the president you know he's not in the senate i mean it's like well the senate is split 50 50 and the vice president breaks the tie, okay? But who controls the vice president? The president. So Biden, in really informally, controls the Senate as well. So I don't think I don't think people really look at it that way. And the reason why I say informally, because we all know Chuck Schumer is the Senate Majority Leader, but he alone can't get the votes enough to control the Senate. So he relies on the vice president, and the vice president relies on the president, which is Joe Biden. So he informally controls the Senate. So I just wanted to explain that. But my thoughts on the... Biden administration and how they really handle really this budget reconciliation and fifteen dollar minimum wage has been really disastrous, really been disastrous politically, but in a weird way, it has kind of helped working class people understand that the political uh, situation isn't going to help you. Like you see right now, a whole tons of people um, out there on the streets saying, "Hey, I'm not going to take seven dollars an hour anymore. I'm not going to take ten dollars an hour anymore." They're withholding their labor in order to get higher raises. So, what do you feel about that? And I think it's good. I think, um, you know, I think we on the left have a tendency to overstate things when they happen, right? We, we don't get a lot of wins, um, pretty obviously. And so when something happens that seems good, um, 
we get really excited, which is, you know, that's normal and that's natural. I mean, you know, I think what you're talking about is those like McDonald's where they put the little sign in the window that says like, oh, we're not working, so they're not paying up. I mean, think about how many of those images you've seen. Is it four? Is it five? It's, I've, you know, it's it's heartening to see, you know, labor action and, and that kind of thing. But I, I do worry that we're making a, a really big deal out of what it turned what really is a couple of a couple of individual instances of radicalized workers um but there is certainly a bigger trend of like uh people just not looking for work because the pay is too low which is you know and and many of those people are not radicalized and not um you know not yet involved in the left and maybe someday they can be because now they have this, you know, natural consciousness that's building. But I think I think that still means we have a lot of work to do to organize. Yeah, I mean, I think that's. Yeah, you're probably going to get a little pushback on that, but um, <laughs> but I do that's think fine. what you're saying is is that, you know, if not everyone's going to be a leftist in this instance in which they are fighting for higher wages and withholding their labor, um, it is important that they feel that way because let's even talk about a political climate that happened in 2008. In 2008, during that recession, workers were told to stick with their shitty job that has low pay, low paying because you'll keep the benefits, right? And then they made the excuse that once the economy turns back up again, then we'll increase your pay right back. But it didn't take until 10 years for that to fully uh, realize. And I think the reason why I brought that up is because the political climate has really changed in an instance where people aren't falling for the bullshit anymore. Like they've seen the billionaire class, they've seen these big corporations double their net worth, debt net worth throughout, uh, throughout the coronavirus and throughout the pandemic and the economic recession. So I do think it's promising that even if you aren't a leftist and you're just an independent um, voter or just a regular Joe working in the field, that that type of feeling of really withholding your labor to increase your own wage to really provide for yourself and your family that can actually be room for really leftists to come in and really show them that there's a more i would say structural way to harness that because and in some in some instances yeah you're going to say something i'll let you guys ranting but uh, yeah well i i would agree with that to a degree but i think i think i also want to like sort of draw a distinction i think when we say withholding labor there's generally an ideological um, connotation there right when you when you go on strike and withhold your labor that's an ideological action where you have you have accepted basically a class war between between the, the workers and the owners right i think a lot of people are not working right now but i don't know that they're necessarily at the stage of withholding labor. I think there's there's a pretty significant difference there. And I think you're right in that people who are not working because they've realized that they can be happier and make enough to survive on the current uh, unemployment benefits, I think they are not working. And so I, think saying, they, so I think they can become people who are uh, class, class conscious and, and you know transition to withholding their labor potentially. But I don't see that as the same thing. So you're saying so you're saying that there's a ideological difference between those who um, say, okay, 
the workforce uh, pay is substantially lower than the employment benefits. So in that regard is you're taking unemployment benefits as a means to sustain yourself rather than subjecting yourself to the harsh labor conditions with low pay versus the worker who subjected themselves to harsh labor with low pay and then withholding said labor after the fact. Is that kind of what you're well, getting at? I think what I'm what I'm trying to get at is that even um you know so even amongst people who are in the same situation where they're not working and they're taking the unemployment because the unemployment is decent right now you can live on it in most places and they're not working a job and they're not looking for a job I think there are there are two types of people within that category and there are, there are a few people who are doing it and have realized that it's um, sort of a, a part of a class warfare and it's a way that they can fight back a little bit, right? I don't think that's going to um, end the dictatorship of the bourgeoisie. I don't think uh, being on unemployment is going to change the world, but it is, it's a, it's a small battle that you can take, right? Maybe. I think, so I think there are a few people who are viewing it in that lens, but I think there is, and there probably for a long time will be uh, a greater amount of people who are doing it um, without that that consciousness right with just they're just doing it because it it it's nicer right maybe you know you don't have to have a your boss yell at you all day and you can survive um, they're doing it because it's convenient because it's the only thing available to them at the time and that's you know there's nothing wrong with that but I think um, those people have yet to be mobilized and and brought into class consciousness. And so I think, um, I think there's a difference. I think that, I think it means that we have a lot of work. To do. Yeah. I basically, I basically, I kind of, I kind of agree with that, especially on uh, that instance, because in order to really move these uh, individuals really on our side of leftism, um, we really, sh um, yes, material. I think we had a discussion too about material conditions and how it can be used to really radicalize and move people to the left in a way where it's yes, you have your leftist theory and ideology, but if you can actually help people's material conditions, it can really help them be more receptive to what our positions are. So I guess what you're kind of getting at is that yes, you have these situations and with unemployment being at times, depending on which state you're in, better than really your own job. Yes, that's great for an individual. Yes, it's great to support their family, but it really doesn't change the systemic issue. You know, so I yeah. think that's kind of what you're getting at. That's the one word we were missing. So <laughs> I'm glad. I we... think. Oh yeah. Yeah, go ahead. Well, I just I want to say like I think I often come across as pessimistic because you know we talk about something like this, and I I tend to worry that people get too optimistic. I'm not pessimistic. I'm I'm an optimist. I'm always full of hope. And, and belief in a better world. But um, I also try to be realistic, right? And I do think we have, a, we have a tendency on the left to look at some small hopeful news and blow it up to be, um, blow it up to be something that maybe it's not and, and something that's a little more hopeful than it actually is. So I think we have to, you know, temper our expectations or we're gonna be perpetually disappointed. Yeah, yeah, we, I, the, the left, we just want to win, you know, we really want to win, 
bad. So I can understand the affiliation of being an optimist. This is probably the, one of the only things I'm really optimistic about on the left, just because like, I know I say I despise like kind of like the cultural reaction to really a lot of these policy politics and especially what goes on. But this is an instance which really could help us become more receptive because instead of teaching someone about how the system abuses you, people see it for themselves. So that that's what makes it easier to convert people to left who may be independent, who are just a regular Joe worker. So I do want to ask you too, this is all in the same subject, about what's your opinion on these states really getting rid of the unemployment uh, plus up bonuses just to force uh, workers back into those low wage jobs um, with horrible working conditions. I mean, even uh, Jen Psaki, who is the White House press secretary, literally said that, um, and she's echoing Biden, when they both said that if you are a worker and refuse suitable work, you are not entitled to those uh, unemployment benefits. So they're literally willing to close a working class loophole when all the other upper class loopholes they're willing to just leave open and not go after. So what are your thoughts on really individual states getting rid of these unemployment benefits? And what do you think the effects of the White House are doing with this effort as well? Well, I'm, I'm not surprised at all, right? The state exists as, as a way to defend property and, and the, the property owning plans. Um, that's, you know, that's its function in a world where, um, in, a, in a world where property owners control society as they do, um, they're gonna control this, the government and the state. And so when the state is maybe inadvertently enabling um, the working class to fight back in the in the conflict, I think um, you know it's unsurprising to see the state step in and correct and, and bring the odds back in the favor of the of the owners. I'm I'm not surprised. I mean, our economy is you know reliant on on the low wage, um, high precarity workers, right? The people who the people who can be fired and replaced at any time and also paid next to nothing, but are incredibly necessary to how we run everything. I think these, you know, we're reliant on them and, and our society needs them to keep running. And so if they have an opportunity to say, screw this, I'm not, I'm not working. Even if, as I said, they're doing it just cause it's convenient and comfortable, which who can blame them? I think, um, I think the the state's inevitably gonna step in and fight back. Yeah, I think that's what you're saying is pretty valid too, because if you look at uh, Joe Biden's campaign contributions, um, even all the way up until election day and who, who funded his campaign, um, in the primaries, Biden was dirt broke. <laughs> no one wanted to fund this guy because no one believed he would fucking win. And when mainstream media got behind him, got behind his back, said, Joe, pick Joe, pick Joe, pick Joe, he could win, he could win, he's most electable. That's kind of, and also to the DNC's dirty tricks behind the scenes, which got him to win the primary. But ever since then, he has received tons of Wall Street cash, billionaire money, uh, credit card company money, big pharma money, all these different types of big industries. And what we've uh, seen with really the Biden administration, especially in uh, what we're talking about. He got funded by more billionaires in, 20, in 2020 
presidential election than Donald Trump himself. Like Biden, I believe, had 130 billionaires to Trump's, what, 170? I mean, uh, Trump's uh, 70? I, I don't know. I wasn't I, counting. Yeah, I mean, it's, I know that Biden had more, but I'm trying to, I'd, I'm probably rough on the numbers. But it really doesn't surprise me that Biden would do it this way. What does surprise me is that the blatant, uh, the blatancy to come out and say that is something you expect from Republicans, but not really a, a Democrat. And But we all know that Joe Biden himself is no ordinary Democrat. He's like, he's to the right of Reagan in many instances as a, a conservative Democrat. So Yeah, yeah. I think also, um, you know, there's an awareness that a lot of people just don't pay attention, right? Most people are too busy with their lives, or at least most people feel that they're too busy with their lives to care about politics, which, you know, when, when they say politics in that manner, they mean, you know, sort of um, Republican democracy and all that's sort of smoke and mirrors. Um, but yeah, I think, I think it's, it's safe for him to say that because aside from a certain demographic of people who watch MSNBC 24-7 and people like you and I who have some strange compulsory need to pay attention. Um, a lot of people just don't. Yeah, I mean, it, it, it does make sense. I mean, when, uh, yeah, because it's weird how the situation was. Like, under Donald Trump, like, the entire media apparatus was up his ass and everyone was glued to the TV, mostly out of fear of what Donald Trump was going to say or do or who is he like destroyed personally this time? Whether the weird phenomenon is like, we should have the same energy towards Joe Biden because you never know what he's gonna do. But it seems like a lot of liberals in general have really went to brunch. You know, they're like, fuck it, I'm done with, you know, mainstream media, I'm gonna live my life, I'm not gonna pay attention. And instead of really learning about the facts on the ground as they come by themselves, they're going back to relying on the media apparatuses like CNN and MSNBC for the news and just blatantly trusting Obama, not Obama, well, him too. <laughs> yeah, Obama and Biden and many of these political figures for their information instead of doing research on their own. And I think that's pretty concerning because even if we um, as leftists are really advocating for not only our policies, but exposing what the United States uh, regime is doing domestically and internationally. We get smeared as liberals for punching at Biden too hard and for, he just got there. You guys are do this every four years and all this type of stuff. So like, but I think, I think, you know, we have to be, that's one way in which we can be optimistic because I think a lot of the people who do shout that are, uh, just as, as much of a, you know, vocal minority as we are, right? I think a lot of the people who are constantly making those arguments are just the liberal, the liberal equivalent of you or I, where they're on Twitter all day and they have nothing else to do. <laughs> Not that they have, you know, I have other things to do. I just don't. <laughs> um, but I think, I think that a lot of people don't see it that way. For one, I think a lot of people, like I said, I think a lot of people are just sort of tuned out, right? We know most people don't vote. We know that 
people are sort of just disenchanted with with everything and um my question is more often how do we get those people to engage with our political projects be they electoral or otherwise um because you know it's you're gonna have to argue with with someone who's a diehard msnbc watcher for hours and hours and hours and hours to change their mind on one thing right and that's is that an efficient use of your time just the same as you're gonna have to argue with someone who consumes fox news all the time you know you'd have to argue with them for so long to get them to agree with you on one one point or one one topic and i think i think you know i think that's purposeful right i mean we're propagandized to an extreme because it's it's a good way to to keep things within the realm of acceptable yeah i think yeah what you're saying does make a lot of sense and that's something i struggle with every day is is that we look at the last election like um the presidential election in 2020 it had the largest voter turnout in i believe 30 years which is scary because it, it didn't really inspire anyone like if you asked anyone about this election well there's four, there's four uh, i think i think people did not like trump i think yeah, there I mean, was a yeah, no, I'm just saying, like, depending depending on, like, if you're playing team sports. Like, we know there's Democrats who, look, I hate fucking Trump. Get him out. I hate, I really don't care for Biden as much, too, but blue team has to win. Then there's the red team where it's, like, you know, China Joe or whatever they always say. And then there's people who just love Trump, and they're going to vote for him. So, I, and the reason why I say this is because it has been become the most partisan. This was one of the most partisan elections really we've seen in a while in 2020, we said that about 2016. And so the reason why I bring this up is because what do you think are some ways in which we could inspire apolitical people and independent voters to really be more apathetical to leftism and really, really pushing the ball left in America without using fear? Because it seems like a lot, seems like in 2016 and 2020, the elections we're a lot based on fear. Like if you vote for this person, America goes in flames. If you vote for this person, America dies. So how can we as leftists really change the political culture, climate, and conversation to more about how policies can make your life better and affect you? Well, I, I tend to think, um, you know, I think the reason that a lot of people don't vote is because they rightly see voting as um, an action without any real consequence, right? And so there, there are two ways. There's way number one, which is like, to me, the Bernie Sanders model, where you basically hope and hope and hope until some guy maybe wins and some by like a miracle, right? I mean, I think, I think looking back at the, at the Bernie Sanders campaign, we could say it would have, it really would have taken some sort of a miracle for him to, to get in there, right? There's, there were all these hurdles that he would have had to um, and for a minute, it looked like he was going to do it, but you know, yeah, the... didn't happen at the end of the day. Um, so I think, I think, you know, in the, in that sort of model, you hope that you get the right person in there and they can make enough change to convince people that voting is worthwhile because if enough people vote, then we can get Bernie Sanders and then we can get overruled by the Supreme Court or something like that. I don't see that as a very realistic option. I think model number two 
is is by meeting people where they are and um and providing help and assistance to people who need it right i see you know i mean i look at i look at you know all kinds of direct action that people have been doing as not only inspiring and making the world better but um also showing people who who cares about them right um there's a guy i follow on twitter um who i don't i don't know him i don't know them personally but uh they're from detroit and they put up all these hand washing stations made out of like a big barrel of water and uh like a spigot and they sort of jerry rigged it and they placed all these hand washing stations all around like the detroit area when covid first came out um and i you know and you know put some put some leftist stickers on that right with the with the understanding that like this was a way that the unhoused community could uh protect themselves during during a pandemic and i think things like that are very inspiring and also have the capability to grow our cause i mean i think we can look historically at any successful socialist movement and see that um the way in which they were able to uh bring the masses to their to their side is by providing immediate benefits to them right um you know when fidel and che were were beginning their guerrilla activities in cuba they were they were going out in the fields and teaching people to read themselves and and providing medical aid themselves right and i think that kind of that kind of hands-on action and and you know just showing show, you got to show people who their friends are just by mentioning fidel castro you're going to get yourself canceled by liberals man <laughs> sorry i just want to throw that in there i thought it was funny but <laughs> it is funny yeah so i mean what you said is actually really great actually you know it really explains to how you could not only change really uh someone's material conditions whether regardless of what political ideology they are but you also explain too how you can educate those to really convert them to the left as well i think that's really valuable right now like we've we've mentioned really on this uh episode uh right now about really the 15 dollar wage we've mentioned too about the political climate in terms of labor and also hourly wage how yeah it's great to have individuals withholding labor. It's good for your family to, it's good for yourself and your family to prove that, hey, I can leverage myself and get what I need to provide. But at the same time, it doesn't really change the situation structurally because the system is still gonna find ways to force you to give up your labor. So that's a great conversation. Um, I do want to, we'll get back to the political scenario, but um, in terms of like uh, the Biden administration um, and the Congress, but I do want to transition to, uh, I think I believe two days ago was the one year anniversary of the death of George Floyd. And last summer, really the George Floyd protests and the death of George Floyd, well murder of George Floyd caught on camera by Darnella Frazier, who at the time was a 16-year-old woman, young 16-year-old young girl who recorded the entire eight-minute um, 
death scene and it really sparked a criminal justice uh, movement and in many ways um, it, at times it left movement with BLM as well because BLM started in 2014 but um, I would say two or three years prior to uh, 2020 it really kind of dissipated a little bit and so it really came back in 2020 and the reason why I bring this up is because um, Joe Biden, who's the President of the United States, he invited the George Floyd family to the White House for like a photo op and to have dinner with the family for the one year anniversary. And I believe one family member in the George Floyd family and the close George Floyd family uh, refused to go to the White House because she stated that I'm not gonna, I'm not gonna be for a photo op knowing that no reform has been passed into place all the other family members did and George Floyd's daughter um what's her name um shit ah, I forgot her name but she uh had a, a took a picture with um Nancy Pelosi and Nancy Pelosi pet her head and she was not happy about that like what you don't pet we're not pets black people are not pets do not touch us without our permission and Joe Biden himself said that he let uh he had uh, the little girl in his lap and was, you know, Joe Biden. I'm surprised. Why he didn't does he say that hair. all the time? Why does he always talk about kids jumping in his lap? Yeah. So what's your, okay. So what's your thoughts on uh, the White House and all the Democrats courting the George Floyd family after the one year death of George Floyd? And what are your thoughts on really the entire movement we can break it down one by one but i want your thoughts first um i mean you know liberalism will always commodify grassroots struggle right i mean i don't know i think you know it's sort of a big joke among conservatives right the whole like uh che on a t-shirt thing right but that that at some point you know like became a, co a, a commodification of of revolutionary values right um we see we see that all the time look at the remember the kendall jenner giving the riot police officer a pepsi ad right oh my god we see the ways in which um liberalism and, and capital uh take the take the grassroots struggles that that happen and um turn them into commodities that can be bought and sold and turn them into, um, you know, little little ways to pat them, you know, ways for uh, for politicians and, um, you know, sort of the upper class white Americans to uh, sort of pat themselves on the back and feel good about themselves for uh, having the right opinion and, you know, being on the side of good or whatever, right? Without actually partaking in struggle, without actually um, changing anything, and I think I think that's always going to happen, no matter what the what the movement is. But there are also things which are there are also movements which, you know, hopefully will be will be strong enough to stand that and and have enough uh, grassroots support to. Um, resist the commodification. Yeah, what you said makes some uh, really great points. You know, conservatives don't want to change the system because they see no fault in the system. 
So therefore, they're not really apathetical to the cultural stuff on the ground. So they're, they're one of the political ideology to reject that type of cultural change. Liberalism is different in this instance. Liberalism pretends that they feel what you're feeling, those who are in the minority, those of working class affiliation, while at the same time, when you ask them to for support and structural change, it's not always as radical as you want. It's almost like they're policing you to go, it's almost like they're policing us in terms of how far change should be met. So I think that's why when it comes to conservatives, we have to fight in the back end, which is difficult. But with liberals, we can't even get off the starting line because there's always deb debates about how far we should be able to go for that type of social justice. You wanted to say something about that, so I'll let you go ahead. Yeah, I think, I think um, the part of the nature of like modern day, you know, liberalism, I think, is a term that most accurately encompasses both political parties, um, just in, you know, in terms of its, its meaning in a sort of political sense. But, you know, modern day American uh, centrists and center left sort of Democrats, I think they often actually do want the change, right? I mean, I, I think about people I know who fall very squarely into that category and they all, you know, they all think racism is bad, right? That no, I mean, nobody, very few people, thank goodness, in this world think racism is good. But there are a lot of a lot of people who are like, who who understand that racism is bad and is also an issue in America, and want to fix it. But I think they have a very shallow understanding of the way the world works. I think they believe somehow that you can change culture without changing um, anything else, right? Um, you know, it's, it's anti-materialist and I'm, you know, firmly materialist to believe that, um, to believe that you can just change culture and to believe that culture and uh, relationship to one's workplace and like the the relations that we have to each other in terms of class hierarchies has no effect on on culture right it's naive to believe that um you know we live in a world with with all kinds of hierarchies including racial hierarchies right the racial hierarchies may be one of the most obvious in america um and you know, you can't just get rid of one of the hierarchies. You can't, because they all rely on each other for legitimation. Um, you know, if you got, if if we just said, okay, no more race racial hierarchy, and somehow immediately dissolved that, people might look at look at a class hierarchy, or look at a gender hierarchy, or look at uh, a hierarchy of sexuality, and say, hey. Why does that still exist, right? So they can't, they need, you know, at the end of the day, as much as it makes them sad and uncomfortable, the world that they think is mostly pretty okay relies on that racial hierarchy. And so they, they fundamentally can't do anything to actually address it because it would, it would betray their other principles and values.
Yeah, what you said basically was 10 times better than what I said. <laughs> yeah, you definitely broke that down well because like even if you look at like me, me when I watched the reaction to the conviction of Derek Chauvin, it was pretty bittersweet. Like I was happy for the family to receive justice, but I was very disappointed and dickwads, but I can call them that, like um, Don Lemon and Van Jones, because they turned the scenario to make it seem like it was a big political policy change for the entire movement, instead of it being for this one case, which I do agree is a good thing. But how mainstream media will misconstrue this is, is that, see, the system, we know it, it's not perfect, but we got it right. So from now and henceforth, we will get it right without actually changing the system itself to ensure that it will change. So I think that is what really made it bittersweet for me because it, yes, it opened the eyes to some people who may be conservative, who aren't open to social justice issues. Maybe now they realize that this was wrong. Like even Pat, what's that guy from Fox News, uh, Pat Roberson, he basically went on there and said, hey, what Dovic Chauvin did, he should be thrown under the jail. And he's the most conservative guy, on one of the most conservatives on Fox News. So I do agree that the conviction did serve a purpose in terms of providing a social, social change. But my biggest worry is that mainstream media and really the establishment's co-opting of really, of really the celebration is really gonna serve a purpose to ensure that no actual criminal justice reform and change will not only be taking place, but is used as a stopgate to prevent further progress. Like, I don't know if you agree with that, yeah. but that's just me and my personal affiliation, how it's gonna go, because I lived under Obama presidency. Like this is the same neoliberal trick he would always do. Like Obama just came out the other day and said institutional pressure is the reason why he couldn't defend the killing of black people, his own people. So what do you, I'm, I'm trying to create an objective question to ask you because you can still, I'm very passionate about this, but what do you, I think you addressed it even earlier about how liberalism itself can co-opt different types of movements. We addressed it earlier, but in this specific case, where do you think criminal justice could go from here? I, 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 I don't know. I mean, I firmly believe that all, all the struggles we face are intertwined, right? And so I, I don't think we're going to get any significant changes to our con conceptions of criminality and justice without changes to uh, like a myriad other, um, myriad other, you know, pillars of our society. I think I think our conceptions of, of criminality and justice and of um, sort of the carceral state are fundamentally tied to, uh, you know, like I said before, these racial and class hierarchies. Um, and I think they're fundamentally tied to our, um, our propensity for violence, honestly. I mean, we, you know, the state commits violence against people every day from, from evictions to, um, to arrests and police brutality to even just, um, you know, austerity politics, right? Cutting, 
cutting something like food stamps is violence. You're, you're taking food out away from people, right? This, and this violence is to us, we consider it acceptable and oftentimes uh, necessary and good, right? So I think, you know, until we address all of those, all of that kind of violence, it's hard to say that, well, the we're going to reform criminality and, and our carceral system to be less violent towards people. Why should we, right? We, you know, if violence is, is good and acceptable most of the time, who's more deserving of violence than, than people who have broken a rule, right? So until we decide that violence in society is wholly unacceptable, um, and especially, you know, state, um, state-sanctioned and state-perpetuated violence is wholly unacceptable, why, why would, or how could we address um, criminal justice? I mean, that, that's not even to get into, you know, the concept of criminality and what is it to be criminal and why is that, you know, considered yeah. the way it is. But I agree. I agree with everything you just said. I mean, what you said was really well said. Like, if the United States finds violence acceptable at some times, why is all the violence committed to those who are innocent and those who don't break rules and not to those who are violent themselves and those who are breaking rules you know that's really one of the biggest issues and that's why i agree with you like if we want to like even if you are for violence why are those who are following the rules and not being violent themselves being targeted so either way if you are for violence on some instances why are those who aren't doing any violence and those who really aren't breaking the rules committing violence and if you want to transition to a non-violent society which some people uh, do you should protect those who are following the rules and living their own lives and when i say non-violence i don't mean pacifism but i i'm referring to sort of the violence that this, the capitalist system uh doles out every day right uh to to make somebody houseless is violent, right? That's a, that's a violent act. And houselessness is, is necessary to our society. That's why we can't get rid of it, even though there are more empty houses than homeless people, right? Because we need that threat of violence to keep, you know, if I'm working a terrible job and my boss is awful to me, what's, what's to stop me from saying, screw this, you know, my life might be better off just without this. Well, the violence of, or the threat of, the threat of houselessness, the threat of becoming, um, you know, a member of what's essentially like an untouchable class in our society, that's what keeps you working, right? So that, that violence is entirely necessary. I agree with same, you. Same with, uh, you know, something like an eviction, right? Um, our, our society is built on the concept of private property. Um, and so inherent to that system are those who own housing, right? Landlords, they, they buy up housing and then they can, you know, sell it or rent it to someone else. Um, if, if we were to say we live in a society where, you know, you can't get kicked out of your house, well then, you know, that's, that's a, 
flow to private property, right? Because now the landlord can't collect rent if there's no way to kick you out of your house. So the violence is, is that I'm talking about is sort of inherent and necessary to our capitalist system. And I think until we address that kind of violence, there's really no way to address uh, carceral violence or police violence or anything like that. I mean, you know, we can, we can take short-term measures to ameliorate it, but it's always going to exist. Yeah, I agree with you. I think really it draws a distinction what you're saying. Like, reforms are really temporary patchwork in my eyes. I don't know if you actually agree with that, but I think of it as like our Michigan roads that have giant potholes and like filling it with like little uh, asphalt pellets. And then like when a snowstorm comes or a couple months later, it's gone. It's like it never did anything there. That's kind of what reformism is in our violent anti-revolutionary capitalistic society is where it's like regular working people put so much energy, whether it's politically, whether it's organizing into these type of reforms, only to see it be eviscerated, whether it takes a couple of years or a decade later. And we have to constantly go to the same table. So that's mm -hmm. why I'm a little bit more for these revolutionary changes and really like abolish the police and really defunding the police, which really um, in the George Floyd bill isn't in there. It actually gives more money to the police. And so these type of really revolutionary and abolishing type of policies is really what's help is gonna be helpful to not only defend ourselves against the capitalistic uh, society, but to prevent people in the future from having to deal with it. Like a lot of times I think of really our big leftist movements back in the 60s, like the Civil Rights Act wasn't just about, you know, protecting the rights of black people. Yes, black people did protest and die for the right to vote and all that. But if you actually look at the devil in the details, it was basically saying anybody, regardless of sex, gender, color, or creed, after us and now and henceforth, shouldn't be subjected to the pains that we had to deal with. So when I think of modern day leftism, if there is an issue that you're advocating for, yes, I believe it's important whether you're black, brown, or whatever creed you are, to be an advocate for that issue for your own community, but also to prevent anyone else outside of your community in the future from being subjected to those same harms. And that's what I'm for, because that is a very libertarian mindset to not only uh, make sure that yourself are protected but future generations and even those outside your own community are protected as well. Mm. Yeah, um, I think I think that's pretty much correct. And I think, you know, it's what you were saying about reforms is something I've, I've thought about a decent amount because, right, you can't say reform is bad because it's not, right? It, you know, America having had the Civil Rights Act passed is better than it, you know, could you really argue that like if we didn't have the civil rights act things would be better no no oh, it would no, be no. way worse oh be. yeah but at the same time it doesn't like like you said it doesn't address like the the real root causes of the issues and the real um you know the a lot of the more in some ways like pernicious and evil uh parts of the parts of the issue so i think i think you're right i mean reform is often important and if you know if socialists and, and leftists in america can um achieve 
certain reforms that only stands to to help us right i mean that's that's why you know i know sort of the squad are very controversial and i think they're often wrong and often make mistakes um but i think they can serve a purpose in that when they do something good as socialists and people see that these people did something good as socialists maybe they'll think hey socialists are good right and i think that's you know even if they're not um saving the world um sometimes they can be positively contributing to the cause i think they also you know i know that's a sort of a sore subject <laughs> for you rj but yeah. i think and i think you know often they don't do that but i think sometimes they do yeah i mean we can really get into house progressives and i think that's a good segue because i understand what you're getting at like having mouthpieces and individuals like the congressional progressive caucus which includes senator bernie sanders and the entire squad and other people who seem progressive i guess like in terms of like leftists who are farther to the left than them and i sympathize with we feel like they can do more and they should do more because they have a political opportunity to do so and you know when you see them at times like the only reason why there's so much like pressure on them from the left in this instance to really use their power is because they have the opportunity to do so because nancy pelosi doesn't have as many blue dogs as she did two years earlier, like two or two years earlier, she had 40 votes and she could tell the squad to piss off. I don't need you. This time around, the numbers are very, very similar. Like she only has like a, at times, depending on the bill, she only has like between five to a 12 vote majority on some issues. And like, for instance, like when it comes to like the Capitol Police funding them more, um, the squad split their leverage in half. Half of them voted present, all the ones who really are not black and those who are black voted no against it. So I guess what a lot of leftists are saying is that in terms of how progressives use their power, it's often in terms of to protect themselves and not actually use their power, their newfound power they have to leverage the movement. Because we tell them all the time that you have this power you could use for the left movement. They know that now. But they're not really using it for the movement, but they're using it for themselves to protect their own political careers. Well, at the same time, I do understand your own thought process of the, hey, having individuals like an AOC, Rashida Tlaib, Ilhan Omar, um, for those who are new to politics and who talk about popular policies that many leftists still are pretty much all in agreement with, they do have some benefit in that regard but it's almost like the structural machine, the structural capitalistic machine in which they're fighting. We just wish they would be more antagonistic towards individuals like Nancy Pelosi because how the structural groundwork works since the 90s in which the Democratic Party has changed leadership rules, the committee chairs don't really have as much power as they used to. You know, and it seems like all the power has been consolidated under the Speaker of the House. That's why many leftists on the left were pushing the squad to be more antagonistic towards the House Speaker Nancy Pelosi. Now, for instance, look at Bernie Sanders, like when um, the $15 minimum wage thing, when the Democrats filibustered their own bill, meaning what they did is say, okay, 
they took out the $15 minimum wage out of the budget reconciliation bill. So if they left it in, it would need 60 votes to take it out. They did it by themselves. So then now, when they took that out, you need essentially 60 votes to put it back in. And it was already there. So if they kept it in there, it's 51 votes you would need to pass, it would have been there. So by Bernie Sanders saying, okay, I am the budget chair. I have a power to put any bill to the floor I want to in the Senate. He did that. The problem is it would need 60 votes instead of 51. And even with it only being 60 votes, many of these conservative Democrats voted against it. You know, So I guess to wrap that entire rant up, I do feel that the squad at times isn't necessarily using all the power that they can, whether it be politically, even if they're beneficial towards bringing people to the left and being allies to a lot of the grassroots movements. So what are your thoughts based on everything I, I said? Yeah, so I think um, similarly to what I said about the, the role of presidency, I think it's sort of the same for, for Congress, right? I think, you know, Congress has a lot of power, like I said before, to do bad things. And then whenever they try to do something good, all of a sudden it's impossible, right? Um, and so, you know, like you, I'm, I'm incredibly disappointed by how they uh, voted on the um, Capitol Police thing. But I think, I don't know, I try not to pay too much attention to that. Um, I, I have a, a, I guess, sort of an almost contradictory position on, on it. But I think, you know, as much as I love uh, you know, like Malatesta and, and how he says to, he says that, um, you know, socialists should uh, ignore parliamentary politics because it's, it's, a, it's a capitalist game, right? It's, it, you know, they will always control it by the nature of its existence. Um, as much as I, I love him and I, you know, I love, or I love that sort of, um, argument and I, f I find it often correct. I also think there is a benefit to it because, um, engaging in struggle at that level and failing can, can show, um, the, the true nature of, uh, parliamentary politics and I think also um, you know like like you said I think they exist as a way to to make us more acceptable right so I don't know I often almost find it it's frustrating because we can argue all day about what fights they should or shouldn't take um, and and where they should stand on certain things Right. But I also look at um, look at a couple weeks ago when when Israel really went to war on Palestine and we saw all of them make these very public and very uh, loud statements in in favor of um, conditioning funds to Israel, which is something that for a very long time has been uh, unthinkable. Right. Yeah. You couldn't even say that. Yeah, just to interrupt you for a second, like even Ilhan Omar and Rashida Tlaib, I believe they're banned from Israel. As yes, I think, that is, I think that's true. Um, yeah, so I think, you know, there are ways in which they are able to have a positive impact on uh, the greater discourse and the greater um, 
political consciousness in America, even if they don't always vote on the things we want, right? I do um, want to add, yeah. and I'm sorry to interrupt you, but I believe those who are to the left of really the House progressives and really the left as a whole, like Bernie Sanders was the compromise in the instance that we didn't always agree with what he said rhetorically or his uh, political strategies, but we agree with him on policy. That's why we stuck with him. I guess the left is transitioning right now more in towards of a movement mindset where it's not good enough to simply be an advocate for the policies, whether it's through your actions in Congress or rhetorically. You kind of have to really be for it in a really correct way strategically as well. You know, yeah. like I've, I've noticed with um, the House progressives, like Rashida Tlaib, like when she went to, when she, Michigan, she represents Michigan's 13th congressional district. She showed up at the, uh, I believe it was the factory in Dearborn where they make all these different types of uh, uh, trucks for Ford. She confronted them face to face about that. You know, and I, and I do believe what they would, um, by the United States, by being pretty much pro-Israel himself, more on the regime imperialistic side, if I must add. So I believe it's unfair to critique them um, harshly in that regard, because we've seen the entire machine, like even Bernie Sanders, I believe was threatened in the Senate to not withhold the arms sale to Israel. So that's also another conversation. So when I'm talking about this, yes, I'm talking about it in the subject and what you're saying, which I guess is kind of wrong in this particular instance, but as a whole, um, many leftists believe that, yes, it's nice to have the squad before these policies, but you kind of have to, we're tired of being with them just purely on the policies when they can do at times better in terms of their strategies and really even better in terms of the rhetoric, which could really drive the conversation forward. Because a lot of leftists now look up to Kashama Sawant, who is the Seattle councilwoman, and she's really the most popular, uh, really political leftist and the uh, left of sphere right now. Could I, could I get a source on that? Like, I'm saying, I'm saying like a lot of different people. I'm not about people's personal affiliation to how she's going, but you can actually comment on both if you want. I mean, I don't know. I don't know too much about her personally. I mean, I know that she's, you know, on their city council and I know that she founded Socialist Alternative and that kind of thing. But, you know, when you say she's the most popular politician on the left or something like that. Uh, well, mostly that, that seems like a real definitive statement on something. Yeah, I mean, mostly just to clarify, probably mostly a lot of um, those who are online leftists really do because she is a prominent guest on like the Katie Halper show. She goes on, I think she's been on uh, Ryan Knight's podcast. She's been on uh, Brianna Joy Gray's Bad Faith podcast. So she is, I would say, a pretty uh, uh, pretty much a solid leftist for those who are in the podcasting sphere and people also look up to her really on the Twitterverse. So I'm not, so yes, it, yeah. you're right for clarification. I think, I think there's something interesting there in that, um, you know, you and I exist in very different uh, parts of the leftist, of the, the left wing community, um, which is interesting because I think it's sort of natural to universalize uh our perspectives right the things i see um and see people talk about i assume 
all you know because it's i think it's natural to assume that that's true of what everyone else is is seeing and hearing and thinking about and talking about but i don't think that's actually true right all three of those podcasts you've listed i i don't listen to right and so you know it's very easy to say that oh these are the big podcasts that do numbers but you know you and i follow very different people on twitter you and i listen to very different things we we take in very different media even though we agree on a lot of stuff right so i think it's i think it's hard to make these sort of universal descriptions about the left in that way um and i think we have to be careful with it because there are things which are universal about the left and i think um I think it's important that we know what those are and that we know what they aren't. Yeah, I guess that's a very good point you brought up um, because yes, the left at times wants uniformity. Well, there's, there's a play on words. Sometimes it's, what is it, uniformity, unity. I think there's another one missing, but there is a big push right now for the left to really be united because we see a lot politically there's different events that happen, which keeps us fractured while at the same time, I mean, there's arguments you could say we do it to ourselves, but we see a lot that the machine, the capitalist imperialistic machine is always trying to make ways to fracture us. And I think the point you're making about being too quick to really uh, unite around really one narrative while at the same time erasing the perspectives of other leftists who may not be online as much or who are in a different place in leftism, I think that's really a fair argument. Because we did mention that I'm on a different plane of like where the left is, you're different than me. So I believe that is a fair argument. Yeah, and I don't think, I don't mean to say that you're wrong, but I think, um, you know, I think it's important to know where our comments are in terms of what they're thinking about, what they're talking about. And so that's why I actually always appreciate talking to you and, and reading the things you, you are thinking about and talking about, because it's often very different from what I'm thinking about and talking about. And then, yeah, I, th I mean, I think it's important to, you know, keep in mind that not everybody is dealing with the same questions at the same time. But I think something you said also brings me to something I think about a lot. And it's that, you know, one, one big debate that seems to come up all the time on Twitter and stuff like that is, um, you know, oh, do you have to read theory? Or whatever, right? And I'm not going to say that everybody has to sit down and read like all three volumes of Capital because I haven't. But I do think that it's important that we familiarize ourselves with the history of the left because a lot of the arguments that are leading to this disunity that you rightly pointed out, a lot of those arguments that we're having, people have already had, right? And so it would probably make our lives a little easier if everybody just went back and, you know, looked at the old, the old version of the argument, decided how we felt and moved on to, a, you know, maybe a more pressing issue or something like that. Yeah. I, I can kind of, well, I think the left right now is like, there's, 
it's like a lot of my feed, I don't really see a lot of like theory thumpers. And I'm saying that like not facetiously, just to be like funny. And then like some factions, it's more like current events type of leftism, whereas like, yes, you recognize like there's certain leftist policies we have, but it's more of a reaction to current stuff that happens on the ground. And the reason why I say that is because that's kind of what I sympathize with. You know, I see things for where they are and I address issues regardless of your own political ideology and I explain it in a way with a, a pro a working class consciousness and as well as spreading my views of leftism. So that's kind of what I think I do best in. And it's also another pathway of leftism where it's more like the practical, like I see a lot of practical anarchism or like a practical other sense of ideology where it's like, yes, theory is important, but how can the, but explaining how these policies or these strategies will really help you personally in your own, in your own community. Because I do believe a lot of times like, Yes, like I do believe theory is important. I believe it is important to understand what happens in prior history because it always circumvents and comes back around to affect you in the present and the future. But in terms of growing a left-wing movement, and we talked about this, I believe in episode seven of Revolutionary Jargon with my friend EQ about how to grow a left-wing movement, just as, it, just as it's essential to understand the history of leftism, how it's worked in the past, the failures of it in the past and how it's affected them personally through capitalism. It's just important in the future to have that knowledge while at the same time find ways to educate individuals in the future and affect their own material conditions enough for them to be open to what you're saying. Because a lot of times yeah, can't be yeah, I agree. Because if you're not in the mindset of understanding how the system is abusing you and you're just seeing yourself being crushed and a lot of times, especially in my family, you know, we have this image of what capitalism is and what it brings. And they just kind of accepted the mindset that, oh, it crashes every so year, it's your responsibility to save and yada, yada, yada. But if you're not broken from that mold and you're just told theory or all this type of stuff, it can get kind of confusing. So in a way- No, I 100% I agree with you. Yeah, yeah I, said, I spoke a lot, but I think you, you kind of get where I'm going. I'm just ranting, yeah. but I got you go ahead. But I think, I think, the, the issue we come across is that, you know, I agree that, you know, not everybody has, you know, the time and, and the, the, is in the correct place in their life to, to read and fully, you know, take in and understand these things. But I think it's also, I think it's important if you want to be seen as uh, authoritative on the subject, or if you want to be that some, if you want to be somebody that is listened to, and you think that you should be somebody that is listened to, um, you know, I'm not necessarily huge on the concept of uh, leaders and like, you know, that to me, that's sort of like, you know, Protestant great man theory, a little, you know, just like, it's, you know, it's not about individuals, but at the same time, you know, the, I mean, there's a reason that, that individuals spring up because, you know, for some reason or another, one person is eloquent or um, is really good at, you know, putting I sort of abstract ideas into words. I think if you want to be someone like that, I think you have a responsibility to familiarize yourself with the past, right? And I think I think you're you're dead right in that we shouldn't be dogmatic about it. Just because, um, you know, just because someone says that one strategy is the best, 
well, that was, you know, if that was a hundred years ago, conditions are different. Maybe that strategy is no longer the best. But I think you have to at least understand and and know about that that whatever you're talking about before you can dismiss it. Right. I think I think that's why it's it's kind of important. I agree one hundred percent. You know that and that's what you know like even if you aren't a leftist who is generally shown interest in reading theory, I believe it's just as important and really just as effective to talk to someone who does. You could help each other. Yeah, yeah. Like we have conversations. I'm, I'm a little bit more practical. You know a lot more theory, but you understand the practical side. So we do have conversations like these all the time about current events, about theory, about where to move forward. I think it's important because like, like you stated earlier, we're in two different spheres. When we can have a conversation like we just had, it really helps the movement overall because then not only I can explain things in a way in my own perspective, but knowing yours and meeting new people who share your probably your perspective, it can really help the movement overall, you know? And so I think this was a great segment to talk about. Uh, I do want to close it and transition to another one right now. Um, I don't want to talk about the New York State primary, you know, since... Uh, the, the, no, New York City. New York City. Oh, New York City primary. Oh, God. Uh, we're going to edit that. No, we don't edit. Never mind. We don't edit on this thing. <laughs> you don't do any cuts? No, I don't do any cuts. Oh, my no, gosh. We just full send that bitch. Full that's, send. That's... Now I'm stressed about all this. Oh, you're great. They'll love you. You're great. <laughs> They'll just, they'll just rip my ass. That's fine. Uh, so what are your thoughts on the New York City <laughs> primary? Uh, we have Andrew Yang. He's anti-BDS. He's pro-Israel. Um, he's very cringe like Liz Warren when he's on the ground. Like, he can't shoot basketball. He dances weird. Um, you have um, Diane Morales, who a lot of people are endorsing right now. Um, you also have uh, Stringer, who's pretty controversial. Um, you also have the pro cop black guy. Uh, what's his fucking name? Eric um, Adams. Eric Adams. Have you yeah, seen he, that video of him? Where he's oh like, yeah. Here's what your kid could be hiding in that room. Oh right. Oh, a nice family portrait. Behind it, a gun. <laughs> yeah, I'm gonna turn it over to you. So, what's your opinion on Andrew Yang, Eric Adams, Stringer, um, and also Diane Morales? Um, and who's and who, who do you think is who do you think is gonna win the race? Not who you want to win. All right. Well, at this point, there's nobody that I want to. I hope they all lose. Um, <laughs> it's uh, I don't know. It's it seems kind of hopeless. Um, I think you just gotta laugh at it a little bit. New York City never seems to have a good mayor, right? I mean, in my lifetime, it was uh, it was basically Giuliani and then um, Bloomberg. Bloomberg and then De Blasio. So you know whatever <laughs> um for a second i thought stringer and morales were pretty good but stringer seems to have some some personal issues incredibly mildly um and so i think nobody uh should add out of a moral stance nobody should support him um pretty obviously and then Morales is now like union busting or something. I don't know what's the, she, she decided not to recognize her staffers union because um, 
I don't know. I think I don't know if this was a joke or not, but I saw someone say that she didn't think the union was diverse enough. I think that's a joke. I don't think that's real. I I hope it's not real because if it is, if it is, um, but so that's obviously very bad. And I think like three of her four top staffers quit because of that. (laughs) So um. That campaign's pretty dead in the water right now. And it's Ooh. not like, you know, I don't think she was pulling double digits at any point. So, Maya Hello. Wiley seems okay, but not great. So, I think I think Yang is going to win because that's the funniest thing that could happen. Um, yeah. But that's good because it means he'll never be president. I don't know. I mean, usually when you all you gotta do is win once, and then that's all it takes, you know. Yeah, but name a name a New York City mayor who's become president. They've all tried. Oh, that's true. I mean, if you're a governor of New York, it happened plenty of times. Uh, yeah, but mayor of New York never. Yeah, that's true. So I do want to ask you about this because a lot of people are saying like Wiley, Stringer, and Morales are somewhat of the left-ish. The reason why I do left-ish candidates in the mayor race, but they're all around, I'm going to say, at generous 7% of the vote. Yeah. And if you look at the race, it's pretty wide stretch and there's plenty of different types of candidates. And so I'm wondering why there hasn't been a conversation about perhaps two of them dropping out, combining their support for one, because if you look at the pure numbers of it, they would reach if I, if my numbers are true that each one, each candidate has 7%, it would be 21%. And whoever that candidate would be, if, and of course, if you look at the data, not every voter is going to just automatically go. There's percentages that play in favor. But if two of them dropped out overnight and supported one, one candidate, based on the numbers and the odds, they would automatically be in the top three. So I think um, it's interesting. This is maybe the high, one of the highest profile races we've seen in America with ranked choice voting. Um, it's a ranked choice election. So, I mean, theoretically, right, if you look at a Diane Morales voter, for example, right, they're saying they like Morales in a poll. They're probably putting Morales one, Stringer two, Wiley three. So none of them is, you know, it, there's no downside to them staying in the race, which is, I guess, a good thing. I mean, I don't think you know, they're not cutting into each other's support base, right? That's just how, you know, instant runoff elections work. Um, I think the reason Yang continues to do well is just name recognition in a lot of ways, right? Like he was, he's a very high profile guy. Um, yeah, but I think I think there's not really much to gain in dropping out. That's why you saw you know, a lot of a lot of groups did co-endorsements, right? Um, like Working Families Party in New York endorsed both Morales and Stringer, and then they rescinded their endorsement of Stringer. But yeah, that makes sense. That's I, yeah. I probably should have known that it was ranked choice because then I probably wouldn't have said that. Because <laughs> <laughs> I'm still in the mindset of thinking, oh, you know, the trickeries and the games you have to play to try to sneak a no. win. So I guess what you're saying does make sense because if you know at the end of the day that if you put all your money and support with three different candidates and it's ranked choice voting, 
if people mark down a hey what this person one two or three it all just goes to the same way yeah. anyway it's not like you're voting for your left candidate and then like if they don't win then it just sucks to suck so that is a good statement i think i don't know i think it's i think we're not gonna get a good new york city mayor but i think it actually made uh new york city ESA look really smart because they didn't endorse anybody. And now a lot of people on Twitter are like, oh, what did they know? What did they know? You know? Which is sort of, I don't know, they probably didn't know anything. But, you know, the fa- I mean, the fact that I'm sure a few people applied for their endorsement um, and tried to go through the endorsement process. And the, the fact that they didn't endorse anybody was clearly the correct move in hindsight. So, I think it's funny about Andrew Yang, how not only is he cucking himself, but Joe Biden is cucked too. And I'll explain why. Um, Andrew Yang, and whether you like his UBAP proposal, I'm against it. I'm pretty sure you're against it. But we're just talking about the cultural effect. So the cultural effect when he introduced UBI, it was pretty negative at first. And then as he became more popular, it became more popular. And the reason why I bring this up about the New York race is because during COVID-19, even Andrew Yang himself went to the White House to, and he was part of discussions about how to introduce a 2K, uh, how to introduce like those, uh, those checks, those stimulus checks. So he, so even the Trump administration under the time was trying to use his model of a UBI in a form of a temporary um, stimulus check. And so what's confusing to me about Andrew Yang is that if he's trying to go under the model of trying to get conservatives to vote for him, what he could do is frame it as really more of a um, more of an independent way. Like you know, I was I could work with anyone. I worked with this guy to help you get checks for to help your family. Um, my UBI thing, you know, depending on who you know, the UBI is pretty trash. I'm just saying. I'm just saying the cultural rhetoric and how you could have gone about it could be better. And I'm really surprised too that Andrew Yang hasn't got the endorsement of Joe Biden because Andrew Yang. Um, when he dropped out of the race, he went on to become a CNN contributor contributor uh, temporarily, and then he endorsed Joe Biden. But ever since then, when Joe Biden would offer him something, he refused it. And so early on in the race, early on when he announced he was running, my initial thought was, oh, he just he's doing this to try to get Joe Biden's endorsement. Because once Joe Biden endorses someone in the race, it's over. Like, we all know this. So my thoughts, and I want your thoughts on this, is why hasn't um, Andrew Yang used his cultural appeal of UBI? And we all, like I've said statedly, leftists are kind of against his version of the UBI, but how come he hasn't used that cultural appeal to, in relations to the stimulus checks in a ways to boost his appeal even more? And how come you think he hasn't really asked for Joe Biden's endorsement? How come Joe Biden hasn't endorsed Andrew Yang? So what are your two thoughts on that? Andrew Yang, I think, is a loser. Um, not that I think he's going to lose, like I said, but I think he's, I think he's not as well liked as we might perceive him to be. And I would say, you know, one of my good friends, um, she was like pretty high up in the Ossoff campaign in Georgia, and so they were, you know, they would organize events. And Yang made a big deal of going down there and like campaigning for Ossoff or whatever. Um, and they 
hated him. They really did not like him around. They didn't want. So the reason I think he hasn't gone after Biden's endorsement or anything like that is because I don't think Biden would give it to him. Um, you know, for example, they had a phone bank in Georgia where, you know, it was a phone bank for Ossoff and there were two hosts or there were two like special guests, Beto O'Rourke, who is also a loser, but I guess not seen the same way. And Andrew Yang, right? They were both there. Um, apparently all of the like flyers and stuff inviting people to come to this phone bank said come phone bank with Beto and Andrew Yang wasn't even mentioned on the flyer and apparently Yang got pretty mad about this and like emailed my friend and he was like is this some sort of mistake like you know that I'm doing this too and they're like no it's not a mistake you know because they he's a loser he's not well liked so wow I didn't even that's <laughs> that's pretty shocking so yeah I've yeah. got a I got a little inside scoop on that one yeah, that's pretty, that's pretty dope. So, I mean, you know, not only is he a political loser, but really a cultural loser, too. I mean, he's worse than Liz Warren. Like, remember that video of Liz Warren dancing and her photo, her selfie line that she used to talk about during the primaries? Yeah. Like, Andrew Yang, I stated, I, I stated this probably earlier on the top of the segment, but, like, Andrew Yang, like, there's, like, this bodega thing where he got criticized by New Yorkers. Oh okay, there was that thing. Then it was like he tried doing basketball moves but missed every shot. <laughs> then it was like him making like taking cringe selfies with people doing like weird dances and stuff. And it's like, this is what you're subjecting yourself to. You know, so they're Yeah, not- exactly. No, th- I mean I think that's why he's not really like their respected by anybody. Because they recognize him as not a likable or respectable guy. Right. So he's got a weird you know. I see him the same as like Elon Musk in some ways, where he's got like this weird, very like rabid fan base, despite the fact that he obviously sucks. Yeah, that makes a lot of sense. <laughs> so what are your thoughts on, um, what's his name, Eric Adams, who's running in the race? Because um, he's- what are, what are my thoughts on him? Yeah. I don't think about it. <laughs> <laughs> The reason why I ask is because it seems like to me he's like, like, the far right version of uh, well, I was even Booker Cory Booker is pretty right wing, but like even more so than uh, Eric Adams, even more so than Booker. And it's like this video of him like showing fam- showing families how to search contraband and saying, "Your kids don't have constitutional rights in your home," and it's like, oh god, like it's just. What are your thoughts on him? Because it's weird that he's so high in the race. You know, like, I don't know if it's just him being black and, you know, that kind of helps, but. Yeah, I don't know too much about why he's doing so well. I think he's another guy who has a a lot of name recognition within the city, right? He already holds a city office. Um, I think that it probably helps him that he's, that he's black. He looks more like New York than, than like a stringer right i mean yeah um but i don't i don't really have all that much to say about him i mean he, yeah like you said he's a he's a right-wing guy he's very pro-cop very you know anti is or anti-bds i mean 
Yeah, that's that's that's, he is. that's basically it. So I guess we'll get into our last segment of really this show. And it's been great having you on so far. A lot of great conversations. Um, I do want to talk about Israel and Palestine. And I do want your initial reactions from all of that. Because, yeah, what's your initial reactions? And we'll go from there about what happened. It's bad. <laughs> um, yeah, I mean, it's it's pretty bad, the, the state of circumstances there. You know, there's a one of the few nuclear states in the world going to war with what amounts to like an area the size of uh, like a few cities, like very, very imbalanced. I think there's, I think that's, I think that's why you see so much, you know, there seems to be something that shifted this time and that there's, there was a great deal of support for the, the Palestinian cause. Um, because it's it's pretty obvious to see that there's on one side a a very well armed uh, very high tech military with all the f thirty fives and drones and you know like I said, Israel is a nuclear power they don't officially acknowledge that they are, but they are um, unlike most countries in the world, they have nuclear weapons. Um, and then on the other side, you have what amounts to a pretty ragtag resistance, right? They're shooting these rockets all the time, but the rockets don't do much. I mean, if the Iron Dome exists, it's knocking most of them down. A lot of them just go off target because they're junk, right? I mean, it's, it's a pretty obvious imbalance. Um, I don't know too, too much about, um, you know, I'm sure some of there's, there's a lot more complexity, I'm sure to a lot of things there always is, but I mean, I think it's pretty obvious that one side is, um, the, the oppressor, right. The, the side that is, uh, expropriating people's houses is, um, you know, that's a pretty textbook aggressive and oppressive action, right? The side that's, that's tear gassing protesters, the side that's, um, you know, the side that's taken drastically fewer casualties. I think there's a, there's a pretty obvious, uh, good and bad, even if there is a lot more, um, context to it. Yeah, I would agree with that. Um, what are your thoughts too? on like some prominent people like Mark Ruffalo had to do a retraction tweet on his support for uh, Palestine. Like he got ratioed like 40K quote tweets. That was, that was brutal. As well as uh, TYT um, co-founder Jank Uger, like he really put out a tweet misconstruing religious wars with what's going on, what happened with Israel and Palestine. Like he said, yeah. like it's crazy. Like he, I'm probably butchering the, the tweet, but he's basically saying how crazy. Oh, he, is. he just did like a 2014 like Reddit atheist post. Yeah. Yeah, that's basically that's basically what happens. Like he's saying, like these two individuals are raving about their sky god or whatever, and it's like. Yeah, it's like okay, bud. Yeah. Yeah. And Real what, cool. Very edgy. Nice. Yeah. <laughs> and what are your thoughts too on really the cultural? aspect of it as well because 
you have some individuals who are misconstruing the power and abuses that the Israeli government is treating towards the Palestinian people with the Jewish faith in general. Like yeah, some I people mean, like uh, Bari Weiss and all these other pro-Israel people are misconstruing like the BDS movement and people being pro-Palestine with people being anti-Jewish. And what people on the left are saying is that and even those, if you, and take the words from the Palestinian people, they said they don't want war against um, the Israeli government or against Jewish people. They just want it to harmoniously coexist and have and have rights just as well as any Jewish uh, person in Israel or Palestine or whatever you want to name it. So, yeah, I think, yeah. I think it's interesting. I think, and for one, there's a very big generation gap even among American Jews in regards to that. Most of my friends, I have a lot of Jewish friends. Um, you know, I, I went to a school that was, you know, not majority Jewish because there's not that many schools like that in the U.S. But, um, you know, a lot, of, a lot of Americans never meet a Jewish person, right? Because it's a, but I'm fortunate to know many because of geographic and et cetera. But a lot of, people my age, the sense I get and the sense I've seen reflected in polling is that there's not the same support for, or at least not the same unconditional support for Israel among the, the younger Jewish people as there is among their parents and their grand, especially their grandparents. Um, and I think people like Barry Weiss and Eve Fartlow are, um, you know, they're sort of, uh, they're getting they're getting louder because they know they're losing the, the battle against time a little bit. Um, they're losing the mandate. Um, and I think, I think it's, it's convenient to them in many ways that Hamas exists. And I I have read some stuff about how um, Mossad uh, helped create Hamas. Um, I should probably read more about that before I talk too much about it, but I, I do know, you know, it's, it's a, it's a true enough thing that it's on Wikipedia, right? Which is, you know, I mean, Wikipedia is not the arbiter of truth, but it's, if it was so obscure, then it would be less likely to be true, but it's a pretty, yeah. I would advise a, you to get the facts on that. Cause you don't want liberals and TYT coming after you cancel Ian. It's a, I'm, I'm looking it up right now, but yeah. Um, <laughs> Because, you know, before um, 2006 or something like that, the PLO was in, was the party that was um, most, yeah, 2007, I think, 2006, yeah. The PLO was the party that was the most um, popular in, in Palestine, and that's a secular socialist um, party. The Hamas is uh, a right-wing uh, fundamentalist party, right? They're not um, they are like, you know, in the Hamas, uh, manifestos and such, they, they do call for the expulsion of all Jewish people from, from the land. Right. And so it's, it's, it's convenient for, for Barry Weiss and for these people to, um, have that enemy or have that, you know, that thing they can point to, because as you stated, 
a lot of Palestinians do not feel that same way, right? Most people in the world, I would say, tend not to be genocidal maniacs. Some, some are, a few are, unfortunately. And it's, you know, they, they manage to cause a lot of trouble. But I guess, I guess this is a pretty interesting dynamic because you have really the pretty much extremists like Israeli government and, as, and people on the left are pretty much against Zionism as well as the ideology of it. And also we were mentioning too about um, Hamas as well. And um, on, in, in terms of the Israeli government, what they're doing with their action against the Palestinian people, taking their lands, the excess bombings, the killings of their own children and people in ways that's bringing about really the exter exter extermination of not only the Palestinian land, but really the Palestinian people if they continue to do so. And I think what you mentioned too about Hamas, the information that um, you just looked up about um, their goal of um, really eliminating the Jewish people, I think both of those positions are pretty extreme and concerning. And I did an interview a couple weeks ago talking about really what progressive Zionism is and whether you are for or against it, it kind of means like they believe that Jewish people should have an area where they have a right to exist. They're sympathetical or sympathetic with the suffering of the Palestinian people. But I guess one of my core critiques is that if you truly feel that way, how come you yourself are in any means of way trying to impact your own government to make those changes? Because we know that the Palestinian people don't nearly have the same rights as a Jewish citizen in Israel, let alone have the same voice and impact. And in terms of the Palestinian people, by them not having those type of rights, it kind of, really eliminates their voice in terms of how they want to bring about change and they're really on defense so i think those four dynamics is what makes it really difficult to not only have a conversation about what to do but to really bring about change overall yeah i mean i think it's also hard for us in america to say this is what the correct uh path forward is right i mean i think we're we're not in the position to know we don't we don't live there we don't experience the struggles that palestinians feel we don't we don't experience the same um you know propaganda efforts and uh things of that nature that a lot of israelis tend to be indoctrinated with right we don't live in a country with with mandatory military conscription Right. Um, you know, if you and if you or I had been forced to serve in the army, would we have the same opinions we do now, or would the army have indoctrinated us to a certain extent? It's it's hard to say. Um, but I think I think what we can do is is look at the situation and see that there's there's two sides, and one side is is powerful and backed by all these Western powers and has um, incredible weapons capabilities and one side has not even clean drinking water, right? And so what we can do 
is support the 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 idea and the cause that the Palestinian people should be liberated from from occupation. Very well said. Um, anything else you want to discuss or bring up for our final thoughts? Because I believe these are some uh, great conversations we had we've had today. No, this was pretty long, right? We went like an hour and a half. Yeah. <laughs> we had, yeah, we were we were pretty much going out and having a good time. So, uh, any plugs for you? Uh, do you want anything you want to plug? Anything you want to don't say? follow me on Twitter? I'm dumb and not funny. <laughs> yeah, he's lying. He's all those type of things. You should check him out. His Twitter is the Purple Blade. I'm pretty thanks to me. You're gonna get like 200 followers now. So, I'm uh, not at 200 followers. There is say, no way. I said you're going to get 200 followers. Oh, I'm going to get 200 followers. We'll see. Yeah, I, I have some, 85. Yeah, some people uh, that I know follow you already. But hopefully you get some more. That way you could, well, the Twitterverse can be uh, chaotic at times. But in general, if you find the right people, it makes it fun. So any final thoughts for us, Ian? This was lovely. I uh, enjoyed talking with you, as always, RJ. I enjoy our conversations too, man. And with yeah. that being said, um, I guess we can come to a close here. This has been Revolutionary Jargon with my best friend Ian talking about all things Biden administration, the one year anniversary of the murder of George Floyd, budget reconciliation, New York City politics, house progressives, as well as what's going on in Israel and Palestine. So I do wanna thank everyone for watching and we are signing out.